Thank you. Yes, okay, well, um, what I'm going to do today is give you the background, the science behind the documentary, Eating Our Way to Extinction. Um, the science in these areas moves very fast. So uh, even for seasoned eco-watchers, I think there'll be some surprises there for you. So uh, might be worth watching. But um, what I'm what I'm going to say is often dire. You know, the experts are, are, are alarmed about what's happening to our planet Earth. But um, it's also a good news story. The good news is that we can turn this beast around. We can change our world. Um, we can we can totally revolutionise how we live and relate to nature. And um, it, it it's a very powerful message. So um, stay tuned. Um, I'm. I co-authored the book that accompanies the the movie. Um, I, I just want to say that the term "eating our way to extinction" it sounds rather dire, but the website that accompanies the the, the documentary is "Eating for Tomorrow," and there's a load of resources, cookbooks, res uh, and meal planners, all sorts of things. Q and A's, the, docu uh, the, the interviews behind the, the the documentary, lots of material there if, if you want to get into that. But what I'm about to present now is an update on the science since the documentary came out, plus some of the background science that backs up the documentary. So um, briefly, I'll, so I'll I'll share my screen and and get straight into that. <clears throat> So just a, a, a little bit of background on myself. Um, I worked for decades with uh, governments, um, in, in particular in Queensland, monitoring the deforestation. Um, our science team used satellite imagery. And over that period of uh, 30 years that I was involved in that project, and even, even up to date, the average clearing in just that state of Queensland, of, of Australia, Queensland, um, was 11 square kilometres per day on average, and 93% of that was for beef and sheep production. So um, I cut my teeth on uh, grass-fed industries and environmental destruction quite early in the piece. And in the beginning, I thought nothing of it. You know, the, back then, uh, nature was ours to take. Nature was there for us to, uh, you know, feed the nation, provide for our families, um, grow the economy. But our attitudes, um, hopefully now, are, are totally changing. So this, what, what I'm going to show you here is a video of how they do deforestation in Australia, mostly for the, um, for the open woodland, for the bush. This... This is an aerial view. They have two bulldozers, which are the biggest they can get, D9s, D11s, 50 to 100 tonne bulldozers, pulling between them a chain, and they call it pulling trees. And they, they have the chain strung between the two bulldozers, and they pull out the trees, some of these trees 20, 30 metres tall. This is uh, more than 100 foot tall, and they're ripped out of the ground, literally. And anything that lives in that environment is the, the, the noise is deafening. Um, the bird life goes nuts. All the wildlife goes nuts. 
the roar of the dozers, the clank, the thump of the trees. It's it's awesome, and um, it general it it is actually awesome, but um, it it's it's so destructive. So this was invented in Australia, this method of tree pulling, and now it's used with great effect in the Cerrado in the south of Brazil. <clears throat> so firstly, I'd like to touch on um, how we're doing. What's the what's the the pulse of planet Earth? How, how are we getting by there? You may have seen this before. The WWF put out a report each year that, that shows us how we're doing against the ecological reserves of our planet. How sustainable are we living? And you may have heard that if we all consumed like North Americans, we would need five Earths to support that. And overall, globally, we need 1.7, 1.8 to support our consumption. You may have also heard that the current food system can feed only 3.4 billion people sustainably. In other words, where are we getting the rest of our food? Well, we're getting it because we are trashing nature. We are, we are taking the reserves that are, that are there in nature so that we're pushing nature into a corner. We're, we're trashing the planet. We'll hear about this as we go. But what does that mean exactly? What does it mean if, if we need five Earths to support our consumption? Well, um, <laughs> this diagram here is, is, says it all it, to me, and I'll explain it. Um, it's not iPhones, it's food. If you look at this diagram, the, the, uh, the, the, the planetary systems that support life on Earth have been defined now. They've defined nine of these systems and their boundaries, their limits. And they've they've called them the planetary boundaries. And, and they've also measured most of them to see how we're going against those limits. How are we, how are we uh, uh, sustainably using the Earth's resources? Well, the, the area, the, the, those facets, those planetary boundaries in the red and the yellow that you see there are overstepping their limits. In the blue, they're within the limits. So you can see that we've overstepped the limit of biodiversity, of, uh, of, of, of species extinction. We've overstepped the limits of, of uh, 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 nutrient pollution, nitrogen and phosphorus. We've overstepped the limits of fresh water, of deforestation and of climate change. What, I, what I'd like to draw your attention to is the, the black dots within this diagram. Now, the black dots represent the impact of our food systems on those planetary boundaries. So you can, you can see for yourself that the greatest impact of all of these, of, 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 on these planetary boundaries is food. So it's not iPhones, it's, it's not our homes, it's not our cities, it's food. And it's now well and truly um, uh, agreed amongst the science that global food production is the single largest driver of environmental degradation and transgression of planetary boundaries. So this is something we need to get our head around. Um, the, the biggest impact we have on planet Earth is what we eat. 
A lot of people will tell you otherwise, but there's no question now, no doubt about it. The biggest impact that we have on our planet is what we eat. And the, and the conclusion from this talk is that diet change is essential for a habitable planet. It's no longer a matter of personal preferences. So when a politician says, oh, they're coming for our hamburgers, they're, they're going to take away our meat. Well, if we want to survive, yes, we must change. It's not a question of uh, it's nice to do. It's a question of we must do it or we won't survive. <clears throat> Okay, I'll go through a number of these um, planetary boundaries and explain how where we are and how we got here and, and what the solution is. Deforestation is, is a cause of major concern at the moment. Um, as you know, most of South American deforestation, which is, which is deforestation central, uh, Brazil uh, is the leader in deforestation globally, and uh, there, 84% of uh, South, not just Brazil, but the Brazilian Amazon. 84% is for uh, pasture, for, for uh, growing cattle, and also for soybeans to feed China and Europe's um, animals. In Indonesia, uh, there's a lot of talk about palm oil, but palm oil is, is about a quarter of the deforestation. By the way, um, palm oil is actually a, a livestock feed. Uh, when they extract the oil, the, the, the rest goes to feed mainly dairy cattle. But um, deforestation for pasture in Indonesia is, is up right up there with palm oil. So globally, well, globally, 96% of all deforestation is in the tropics. So this is where the action is. And, and we can see that animal agriculture is driving this to a large degree. The deforestation fronts you can see there my home, Queensland. It's a it's a deforestation front. Um, the the area of clearing that I was seeing is actually uh, up there with the Amazon in area, not not so much in density uh, of trees, but in in area. And um, you know, in my experience, the, the, this they were clearing ten square kilometers a day. For beef. Now that's two and a half thousand acres per day for beef. Now that, that's got to affect you. Most people don't see that, of course. They, they live, we live in cities, so we don't see this. But when you go into the country and you see this happening, it's breathtaking. You, you know, just the noise alone, as I said before, but the 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 impact on nature is is frightening. And so there are the other deforestation fronts. You see South, um, Af South America figures prominently, Central America, uh, Africa, uh, and uh, Indonesia, Malaysia, Papua New Guinea. Now, you can see that's a deep, large deforestation front. And it's been predicted, by the way, everything that I'm saying here is non-controversial. This is in the peer-reviewed science literature. So this is not a leading edge, oh, yeah, I don't know if that's really correct. This is uh, science in the, in the, in the, in the uh, science documentation. It's all peer-reviewed and it's, it's out there. So um, there, there's no question of this. It will be developed, of course. The, the, the science builds on itself, 
and I'll, I'll be coming across some new information that you wouldn't have heard. But um, this is this is non-controversial. It's all fact as we know it today. So it's been predicted that the planetary boundary for deforestation will be ex ex exceeded within the next 10 years. What does that mean? It means that we'll hit the boundary, the ecological boundary, and the result is ecological collapse. And I'll give an example of that in, in a minute. But um, when, when we say, when we say this is not some sort of uh, academic limit that we're prescribing, oh, it would be nice to, to conserve so much of the forest. We're talking about ecological uh, limits, ecological boundaries of planet Earth. Planet Earth, that beautiful blue planet that supported us all these many years. And these images are just two 10-day snapshots of fire around the world. Um, and you can see this is this is in the dry season north and south of the equator, left and right. And you can see that the world is burning. Um, this is also something that's largely hidden from us in the cities, except if you live in, in Singapore um, or places like that. The, the, the uh, smoke from the fires uh, sometimes overwhelms you. They, they sometimes shut the airports because the smoke is so is so strong. There are two things that we humans do to suppress regrowth of forests or to kill forests. Um, it, 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 it's a big effort to kill a forest. It's not easy. Um, you, can, you can come down and, and, and log the forest. You can all, even clear fell the forest, take every tree out. And if you left it alone, it would revert back to forest in time. But we don't do that. What we get in there is we burn, we burn, we burn. And, and it's this fire that converts the forest to another land use. Only through fire can we change that land use. And it's hard work. It's, it, it takes repeated burning, as you can see here. So the world is burning and we burn uh, for deforestation. We burn once it's grassland. We burn the old dead grass off so that the new green pick comes through so the animals can eat that. Uh, and we also burn the, the savannas so that the, the, the woody weeds, they call them, uh, the woody weeds don't grow back so that we, we keep it in a state of grassland artificially, whereas the forest wants to come back. <clears throat> so logging does not kill forests. Repeated burning kills forests. Said another way, food kills forest. Logging does not kill forests. The solution to this, um, many have studied this, and um, here's one conclusion. Switching from animal protein to plant protein can stop deforestation. Biodiversity loss. This is perhaps the worst overstepping that we've done of planetary boundaries. This may be the even worse than climate change. This may be the issue that extinguishes or radically alters life on Earth. So uh, it's been called the sixth mass extinction. Now, now, in the journals in the last 10 years, the science literature has changed dramatically in tone. 
Normally, science literature is very conserved, conservative. Normally, um, they they talk in 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 sort of uh, in tones that are right away from anything that might sound uh, sensationalist. But now the language is changing. These are these are the leading biologists. And they're saying things like humans are responsible. The sixth mass extinction is already here and the window for effective action is very short. Species are being lost at about a thousand times faster than the background rate for the last 10,000 years. So here's some uh, research from last year. Um, we know now that um, about 10% of all animal species are now extinct. And um, the extinction rate is actually 200 times faster than the previously accepted uh, extinction rate, the IUCN red list, which is the generally accepted uh, international standard. But the science is selling, saying us, telling us now that uh, the extinctions are 200 times greater than what we thought they were. And this is the sort of language that I could, that we're hearing more often. Our results re-emphasize the extreme urgency of taking massive global actions to save humanity's crucial life support systems. So this language is, is not unheard of, but it's becoming more and more common. And here are the biodiversity loss hotspots. And where are they? They correspond with where our agricultural activity is largely, particularly grazing, but also cropping. What I'd like to do is talk to you a little bit about the life that's left on Earth. Um, when we came out of the last ice, ice age about 10,000 years ago, uh, humans were eking a living. We were, we were just holding on. Um, by the skin of our teeth, as they used to say. Um, but since then, we have got together, we've ganged together, we've declared that nature is ours for the taking, and we've done that. And this has been done at the expense of um, wildlife. It's also been done with the, the miracle of the Green Revolution. What's happened is that... Um, the Green Revolution largely has relied on nitrogen fertiliser, and nitrogen fertiliser has been pulled out of thin air. Um, plants need a lot of nutrients to grow, but the main, the main uh, macronutrients are nitrogen, phosphorus, uh, potassium. So nitrogen is the big one, and that's the limit of nitrogen in most growing systems is what limits growth. So uh, what we've done is we've, we've used this uh, Haber-Bosch process to pull nitrogen out of reactive nitrogen out of thin air. In the, air, in the atmosphere, 70% of it is nitrogen, but it's, it's unreactive. And then we pull it out of there, we make it reactive, and we put it on plants, and they go nuts. So, so the Green Revolution has, has come with, on the back of uh, nitrogen fertilizer. And this has allowed us to grow the number of animals on Earth dramatically. Have a look at this. 
this is um, this is a diagram of the all the mammals on Earth, the, the wild vertebrates, hot-blooded that uh, that give birth to children. Humans on this. <laughs> um, some people say there's too many people on Earth. Well, there are, but but we, we don't. <laughs> we're a minority. We we weigh a, about a third of the life on Earth now. Farmed animals, on the other hand, weigh 60%. So about twice our weight it, we have it in farmed animals. For every man, woman, and child on the planet, we have about 20, 25 animals. And it's feeding those mouths, it's, it's feeding those animals that's put, placing the impact on the earth. And of course, all of those animals are young. They're babies. They're growing crazy. Um, so they need a lot of food. So they eat actually five times what humans eat. So um, it's it's this imbalance that that has uh, that has totally distorted the system and blown it up, as we'll see. So farm farmed animals make up sixty percent, but they eat more than twice that much. <clears throat> Pets, by the way, are one percent. But what's left of wildlife? This is from from the the marsupial mouse up to the elephant to the whales, um, they now represent, by weight, just 4% of the biomass of mammals on Earth. So we've totally changed the, the dynamic of life on Earth. We've forgotten that we rely on functioning ecosystems where these other animals can thrive so that we can thrive, and we've forgotten that. And what's placing that pressure on those ecosystems is, is not so much humans, but the animals that we breed. <clears throat> uh, the latest figures are that um, wildlife populations have shrunk by, about, uh, by nearly 70%. Half the plants are gone, half the fish are gone. The fish that we eat, we've got, we've got rid of 80 to 90% of those. So we've dramatically altered um, life on Earth. <clears throat> Every so often, the United Nations get together. They have another COP committee uh, conference of the parties, and, and this is on biodiversity. And um, they had one um, in 2020, and uh, <laughs> they looked at all their progress right around the world. They looked at all their progress, and they said, that we're getting nowhere. They said only the they said no strategic development goal has been met, none. And only the highest level of ambition will give a realistic chance of stopping and beginning to reverse biodiversity loss by 2050. That was back in 2020. They had another meeting last year where they decided, hey guys, we're going to do something about this. So let's dedicate one third of the world. Let's, let's give that back to nature. And they made all these grand plans, but there's nothing behind it yet. So I'm predicting that we'll have the same story next time unless something radically changes. None of their goals will have been met. So what drives biodiversity loss? Well, very simple. Biodiversity equals habitat. If you take away an, a wild animal's habitat, you're killing it. You're providing, you're taking away its food sources, you're taking away its, its, its uh, living area, you're taking away the systems that support the life of these 
animals and plants. So cattle farming is now known, now uh, agreed to be the greatest driver of biodiversity loss. Remember, this is the science telling us this. This is not my opinion. 80% of agricultural land is devoted to livestock and feed. So meat is the biggest threat to wildlife. It's not feral cats. It's meat. <laughs> Actually, I did a, a, an interesting little study last year where in Australia they, they say feral cats are, are, are causing havoc amongst our wildlife. But the, I dug into that in a little more detail and discovered that what we do is we, we actually actively suppress the apex predator, which is the dingo. Um, they call them wild dogs so that we don't feel so bad about it. But 75% uh, of all the wild dogs that are killed in the name of agriculture are dingoes. And... If you take away the dingoes, then you take away the control on the feral cats. So um, the, the, the beef and sheep producers, <laughs> by taking away the apex predator, they've exacerbated the, the uh, feral cat situation. But the, it's not, it's, that's just the, around the peri-urban areas and, and the urban areas. Uh, out, in, out in the bush, so to speak, you don't get feral cats. But if you take away the habitat, you take away the life of the animals as well. So it's been known for a long time, this is just one piece of literature of many, that the no meat diet is the most effective action to prevent biodiversity loss. So what do I mean? What happens when you get, when biodiversity loss reaches the limit? You, you get ecological collapse. So let's have a look at this for the Amazon. Amazon is the largest rainforest on earth. It has the richest biome. And the, they, they have this, this really interesting dynamic where the Amazon rainforest generates its own rain. The, they call it the river in the sky. So the Amazon river itself takes water out to the east. In the, in the sky above comes the river in the sky holding just as much water, and it, it flows east to west. And it, and it rains on the Amazon and then it turns south and it waters uh, the, the Brazilian and other um, uh, countries south of there. So Brazil has an incredibly, uh, incredibly productive agricultural system. They get two and sometimes three crops a year rain fed. So it's, it's, it depends totally on this rain. And what we're doing is... Um, uh, the, this um, this water cycle is is worth a lot of money, and and what's happening is that the the that that cycle, the river in the sky, is faltering. We've we've had uh, 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 we've had droughts in the Amazon for the first time ever in the last decade. That's starting to falter, so and this is changing the the um, um, the, the 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 life of the of the of the rainforest and that so that amazon generated rain is faltering most species most species in the amazon are already affected and we're reaching or we're close to reaching a tipping point what they're saying is that if we deforest 20% of the amazon this will disrupt that water cycle 
And if if that water cycle stops, then the the most of the Amazon will revert to open savanna. In other words, it, it will be rainforest no longer with all that rich species diversity and and oxygen produced, et cetera. And of course, um, when we do that, when we take away the habitat, we also <clears throat> encourage zoonotic disease spillover to from animals to human. So we've reached that 20% tipping point. We're having the first ever droughts and Amazonia is expected to revert to open savanna if we continue. This is ecological collapse right here. Why is the deforestation happening? We know it's, it's for grazing animals and feed crops. And it was a paper came out just a couple of months ago that said that even if we do one simple thing, if we look at supply chains and we stop the beef that comes from deforestation from Brazil, if we just do that one thing, we will halve the deforestation in Brazil. So <laughs> there is the power of diet over um, eco e the ecology of one of the most important biomes on earth. So that's ecological collapse. The next is a rather uh, interesting but, but rarely spoken about topic called protein pollution or nitrogen pollution. It's nitrogen and phosphorus actually, but uh, nitrogen is the big one. Because we've, take, we've created so much uh, nitrogen fertilizer and put it on the crops, um, what happens is that the, that system is a leaky system. Um, so, so it gets into the groundwater, gets into the, into the, uh, the, the waterways, et cetera. But what happens is uh, most of the crops, um, I think I might have the graphic later, but, but if you, the, the IPCC did some really interesting work on this just a couple of years ago, and they discovered that if we look at the produce from crops, from the world's crops, if the, the, uh, just less than a quarter of the produce by dry weight goes to humans, just more than a half goes to animals, and the rest is biofuel and cotton soil. So um, the, the, what happens is that the, the, the crop produce, that, that half that's fed to animals, it's actually it's concentrated. And most of animal production these days is in feedlots, and we concentrate it. That's the whole, that's the whole idea. So this nitrogen pollution, this nitrogen which, which builds protein in those animals, nitrogen equals protein to a first-level uh, estimate. So this nitrogen equals protein equals uh, fattened chook, for example. Um, they they are very wasteful. In other words, most of it, most of the nitrogen is put out in their in their waste. And so we have these big lagoons with uh, with their waste, and we don't treat it like we treat the effluent, like we treat the sewerage from cities, from humans. We just put it into ponds. And the next time it rains, or, or it, it, get, it gets into the groundwater, gets into the waterways, and it pollutes and it kills off these waterways. It's, it's considered, nitrogen pollution is considered the greatest co coastal water and air uh, pollutant, the greatest. 
it's uh, it's been most studied in Europe, but Mississippi River is a classic. It's it pollutes the uh, the Gulf of Mexico, and and now we have around the world three to four hundred permanent dead zones. The Gulf of Mexico is a standout for that, but so much extra extra nitrogen in the, in the system. What happens? It it's it's really interesting. The nitrogen, all these nutrients come out, and the algae they love nitrogen. They love phosphorus. And they just go nuts. So we have this algal bloom where where they just uh, uh, go crazy. Now, what happens is that they that they um, that, that while they're doing that, they produce oxygen like, like a plant, and and eat carbon dioxide. And as soon as they've eaten up all the nitrogen in the system, they die, and then they settle out. And when as they're doing that. They strip the water of the oxygen. So you end up with deoxygenated uh, water. And, and this flows out into the streams. It kills the streams and, and the rivers and eventually the oceans. And now the even the open oceans are being depleted. We'll see that in a minute. So meat production is the leading cause of nitrogen pollution in the USA. And there's three to 400 permanent ocean dead zones from nitrogen pollution. In Europe, they've studied it most. They've, they've seen that to, to get the nitrogen to a controllable level, they need to halve um, nitrogen pollution or suffer toxic tides, lifeless rivers and dead oceans. And how do we do that? Um, oh, I don't have it there. But the way to do that is to halve the meat production. I might have it in a later slide. There's also air pollution comes from nitrogen, uh, from, from PFOs. Um, ammonia, PM2.5 dust, nitrous oxide, and volatile organic compounds. Um, downwind from these production facilities, it's not fun. Uh, all sorts of uh, respiratory diseases, etc. And U.S. animal agriculture is responsible for 80% of air pollution deaths due to food production. So, so, so uh, uh, four-fifths of all deaths accorded from air pollution come, come from animal production. Here's a map of the ocean dead zones. The red dots are the permanent ocean dead zones. The blue now is the open ocean it's going hypoxic. Hypoxic means that it's losing oxygen. So um, we can see that even the open oceans now are, are um, uh, depleted of oxygen. And in the past, uh, oxygen depletion in the oceans has been linked with mass extinctions. So we are playing with fire. So what happens? This nitrogen that comes from the fertilizer that feeds the plant that feeds the animal, uh, that feeds people, most of that nitrogen is wasted. If we eat chicken, 80% of the nitrogen that's fed to the crop is, is wasted. If, beef, if we eat beef, 96% of that uh, nitrogen is wasted. So for example, chicken is the most efficient of those meats. So it's, it's as though uh, th this, this this will be interesting to those who are worried about food waste. So it's as though if we eat chicken, it's, it's like putting five bowls of pasta in front of us on the, on the dinner table, having five bowls of pasta. We eat one bowl, 
and we throw out the rest. That's how much waste there is from the most efficient of these meats, which is chicken. <clears throat> oh, this is this is what I was talking about before the the European, but it's also in in, in America now. We know that the best way to bring nitrogen pollution under control is to replace at least half the animal proteins with plant proteins. Land degradation, I'll just run through this quickly. 69% of the land is now degraded and a quarter of the land is highly degraded. There's the map. It's pretty roof gruesome. Each year, we lose 20,000 square kilometres to soil erosion and 4 million square kilometres of cropland is now abandoned. Half the world's agricultural soils are gone and uh, some say that we have 60 years of farming left if soil degradation continues. So even if you disagree about the 60 years, um, there are some areas that are very, very deep soils where you're not experiencing erosion that that will continue. But we need to do something dramatic about our soils. Principal causes of soil degradation, over de overgrazing, deforestation and agricultural practices, mainly the way we crop our soil, plough our soil. Um, so if you look at the, the crops that feed the animals and the overgrazing, the animal agriculture is the principal cause of soil degradation. Freshwater. This is another gruesome tale, but we get to the good part soon. By 2030, the world will need 40% more water and 84% of cropland will have less uh, Oops. Uh, less water with climate change. And the, the, the kicker for water is refugees. We've had over 20 million climate refugees per year for decades now. Most of them are within their own region, within their own country, but some of them get up and walk to another continent as we saw with Iraq, Syria. This is the map of water stress by 2040. Um, you can see that many regions in the world are going to be under stress. Water stress means less food. Um, so this, this is a dramatic, a, a drastic thing that uh, that will um, that will come back to bite us. Sorry, I'm just repositioning here. Where does the water go? Um, it takes six times more water to grow a kilogram of protein from animal sources, and it takes twenty times more water to grow calories from beef than from grain or potatoes. So that's where the water goes. You can see this graph from the FAO from some years ago. The potato takes 25 litres to grow, whereas a beef burger takes 2,400 litres to grow and a glass of milk 200 litres 200 
to produce. So <laughs> it's, it's no secret. This is where the water goes. <clears throat> it's been well studied now. And the Stockholm Inst International Water Institute has estimated that we will have enough water by 2050 if we, we reduce animal food consumption to 5% of total calories. That's equivalent to a three quarters reduction of animal foods globally. That's equivalent to about a 95% reduction in animal foods in the heavy meat eating countries. This is, this is not academic. This is, will we have enough food to support the world in 2050? And water is going to be the limiting factor. Oceans. We've wiped out 90% of the big fish, the food, the ones we eat, and bottom trawling has ploughed the continental shelves. We've destroyed those ecosystems. These ecosystems are necessary for the health of the oceans, which ultimately are necessary for our health. This is an incredible story of human folly, foolishness. I, I just find no words for this. This is there are fewer fish in the sea than ever before since we've been here. And, but the fishing fleet has gone up. Its capacity for fishing has gone up 10 times since the 1950s. And the catch has gone down. Even though we're really getting really good at catching more things, the catch has gone down by half. So we, we're shooting ourselves in the foot here. This this is this is human folly on an amazing degree. I, I just can't get this. An example of this is the the cod banks of uh, North America. Um, this was a incredibly productive fishery um, back in 1900. The, the, this fed the world in fish. In the UK now, it's illegal to buy cod for this very reason. If you look at the red zones here back in 1900 and compare that with 1950, 1975, and now 19, well, 1999, was this, this study was done, the, the, those fish are now just about gone. The, the biomass of fish in the North Atlantic now has been decimated. Solution to that, of course, it's pretty simple. Don't eat seafood. Climate. Now, this is interesting. Um, some uh, recent research here says that we are now at tipping points. Uh, interesting, not bad, not good, rather. We are now, we've now reached tipping points on uh, a number of areas around the world. A lot of them are related to ice and snow. But these tipping points, you see, the world's predictions on temperature for the future. This is all based on um, linear models. You, you look at, um, these, these, are the, these are the models that say, okay, what are our emissions going to be? And therefore, what's the future temperature and climate going to be? And none, none of those models is based on nonlinear um, uh, uh, changes. And when we hit tipping points, we get a nonlinear change. So what this is saying is that we're about to hit, or we are hitting now, the points where we have an unknown future. 
the, the models are not just going to describe the future we, we're getting ourselves into. So even at 1.1 degree global warming average, we have a, such a, 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 a difficult future ahead of us. It's, it's, uh, I, I'm the father of six grandchildren and I fear for their future. I know the solution, but I fear for their future. And the face of climate change is what I mentioned before with water. It's refugees. If you are a Syrian farmer who year after year you have the millennium drought and then another year of drought and you have no food to feed the family, you can't rely on, on the government. Uh, there's, there's no social security there. You must get up and walk and go to Europe. That's the place to go. So... Um, it's been projected that we'll have 150 million climate refugees by 2050. As I say, most of them within the same continent. But this is going to cause frictions and uh, all sorts of problems for the future. Now, we know that food will cause one and a half to two degrees global warming, even if we cut carbon dioxide to zero. Did you get that? So food alone will cause more dangerous global warming, let alone fossil fuels, let alone anything else. Um, so so that, that single point there must make us sit up and think about food. But no, you're not coming for my hamburger. We've got to change that or we won't survive. Okay. Um, uh, I've got this a little bit out of order, but um, uh, this is a map. We'll come back to this. This is a map of the, um, the the world's grazing pastures and the amount of vegetation and therefore carbon on those pastures. And if we rewilded those pastures, we could soak down as much uh, carbon dioxide as, as the fossil fuels have all released. So the solution to climate change, it, it's also the lowest cost, largest scale climate fix we have. And it's rewilding grazing lands. We'll, we'll get to this, uh, why this is important in a minute. Uh, this was just a, a picture from the Australian bushfires. They were, they were scary. So, um, this is a, a piece of new research that's just come out uh, about six months ago um, that, that's blowing our understanding or in, in increasing our understanding of climate change dramatically. Now, if you were to ask anyone on the street or even think yourself, what's the leading cause of climate change? Most people would say it's carbon dioxide and it's fossil fuels. Well, not true. Um, and the reason for that is that when we burn fossil fuels, we release carbon dioxide, which warms the planet, but we also release sulfur dioxide and nitrogen oxides and other aer aerosols that cool the planet. So um, we have this, this, this struggle between warming and cooling um, of, of when we burn fossil fuels. The, the, the father of uh, climate science, James Hansen, he called this the Faustian bargain, the deal with the devil. If we stop 
burning fossil fuels altogether, the, the, the aerosols that cause the cooling will leave the atmosphere fairly quickly, but the carbon dioxide will stay up there for, for a lot longer. So, so the, the point of that is that the warming from carbon dioxide up until now has been almost almost masked totally by the cooling from these aerosols. So the net warming from fossil fuels, including methane escaped, has been just 20% of global warming. I'll repeat that, that up until now, actually 2015, the warming from fossil fuels has caused 20% of global warming. What's caused half global warming is methane. Okay, so that fact alone, if that were factored into policy, that should change dramatically how we think about emissions. Because up until now, fossil fuels haven't been the baddie we thought they were. It's methane is the baddie. And we all know the greatest uh, source of methane it's animals. So, so there's the problem. We need to recalibrate that thinking. And most of the 20% that's due to fossil fuels is actually the methane component of leaks from coal mines and fracking, that sort of thing. So the, this is the new science that's absolutely sitting a lot of people on their hind legs. And um, it's too much for most people. They, they're not even talking about it. And if you look further back, if you look further back in time to when we started deforesting with our stone axes and fire, um, we've, we've, we've stripped the world of half its forest and degraded a lot of the rest. And the emissions from that are actually, in, in cumulative, are, are actually greater than the cumulative emissions from fossil fuels. So. Um, if you look at um, what's causing global warming to date, methane's the big one. We know where that comes from. And the other unconstrained carbon dioxide comes from deforestation. It's not constrained by uh, aerosols, uh, cooling. So, so agriculture, uh, particularly animal agriculture, has been the leading cause of um, of climate change. And as we saw a few slides back, if we revegetate, if we rewild those areas of the world that, um, that, that are now grazing lands that used to be forest, then we can reverse effectively, reverse climate change. So that the power of food in changing our planet back to a habitable planet is extreme. It's extraordinary. And when we look at all of the um, uh, all of the studies that look at what's what's our way out of this climate change mess, what are the solutions? All of them have forests and and reforestation and afforestation at the very top of the list. You can you can see this is natural climate solutions. It's one of many. There's there's others called Project Drawdown, and there's a lot of other studies, but. Um, you can see from this that forest reforestation is number one. 
Now, this scale goes from zero up to four there, but but this and it's broken, and this is 10. So way off off on the right of this chart is is the effectiveness uh, of reforestation. So it's the number one solution. And people, we, we know this, climate scientists know this. By a long shot, that's the number one solution. <clears throat> um, the other I'll bring your attention to is that uh, grazing animal management, grazing optimization, and grazing leg legumes, these solutions are right down here. So they're tiny in comparison to forests. Forests are the main game. We will come to see in the future that every tree is so precious. And why is this so effective? Why is it that um, food is so, so effective? Well, this is it right here. It's land use. It sounds uh, rather boring, but it's so powerful. This is an IPCC group diagram of what we do with our planet. Um, you can see that the infrastructure, the built-up areas in pink on the left-hand top, that's just 1% of the planet. So even though this is where we live, all we see is roads and railways and houses and, and bridges and, and airports and, and, and cities. This is all we see, but that's only 1% of the planet. So not very powerful in terms of uh, vegetation. Um, you see that the next area, which is 12% of the planet, is cropland. 2% of, of, of the planet is irrigated. The rest is non-irrigated. So we rely on non-irrigated cropland greatly. In green here, the largest land use on Earth is grazing land. The largest land use on Earth. And we still have 22% of the, of the earth that is uh, forest. About 12% of that is untouched uh, or not dramatically altered, but most of it is altered. And then we've got the area that we don't use. So if you, if you were manager of this land, if this was your island, say, and you were manager of it, you could see now that tweaking land use on the single largest land use would have way more effect than tweaking land use, for example, growing trees in cities. In his recent book, George, uh, Regenesis, George Monbiot says that if aliens were to visit the UK, they would think that the dominant life form was sheep. Now, that's a bit of a joke, but um, <laughs> it's obvious. When you, when you look at this land use, what do we give away our precious planet to? Most of it we give away to grazing animals. And uh, uh, half of this, a big chunk of this, is given away to uh, feedlot animals. But the most of all is grazing animals. Now, I would think that wouldn't it be better to give it to people rather than animals? So George Monbiot is right. And from that uh, grass-fed area, from that grazing area, we get it, which which corresponds to thirty-seven percent of the land. We get five percent of our protein. That's all, just five percent of our protein. 
Now, isn't that a gross waste when we know that repurposing, rewilding that land can effectively solve the biodiversity crisis, solve the climate crisis? Um, there's a lot of literature now on the amount of carbon dioxide that could be soaked down. Uh, most of them look at uh, realistic solutions, um, but some of them now are deliberately uh, modelling uh, the vegan diet, and the, the numbers are huge. They, they're using all sorts of terms to describe this. They, they're using opportunity cost, carbon opportunity cost, uh, double climate dividend, uh, many different terms, but it's removing grazed animals off the land to rewild that land. <coughs> Pardon me. So if we remove grazed animals from our diet, red meat and dairy gone, we would reduce methane emissions by at least a third. We'd slow global warming by at least two decades and half a degree. We would draw down all the, the fossil fuel emissions and the, the, the ongoing deforestation would all but cease. 80% of that would stop. This is a powerful, powerful solution. <laughs> we just got to uh, get it, let it sink through. Now, this is some work I did when I was looking at regenerative grazing or regenerative ranching. Um, the the the, I, I think here it's a it's a case of uh, um, uh, bias, just simple um, uh, simple bias. This here on the left hand side, this this blue bar that you can barely see here, that is the full potential of restoring all the world's grazing lands to optimal to their prime previous condition. So it's equivalent to one to two percent of global emissions. It's it's minuscule. It's tiny. Um, this this next bar is the crop soil reparation. If we were to restore all the world's crop soils to their pristine condition, this is how much carbon we could soak down. So what that shows you is that even though the croplands are a much smaller area they've lost a lot more carbon than the grazing lands have lost. So that's where we've, we've turned the soil, we've oxidised the carbon, which carbon starts with plants, of course, goes into the soil. When we disturb the soil, it's oxidised and it's, and it's, uh, it, it's eroded. Um, and, and the third bar here is the, the uh, potential, if we restore the forests, on the world's grazing lands, just the forest areas, which is less than half of, of those grazing lands, we will effectively reverse global warming. And then I did a, a thought experiment. Okay, what if we what if we rewild all the world's cities? Because the cities are built on rivers, they're, they're, they must have been big forests there originally. And that's been studied now. <laughs> And here it is. That's that's the bar that if we rewild all the world cities, we'll get this amount of uh, carbon drawdown. But in comparison to the carbon drawdown, if we rewild the world's grazing lands, it's it's also insignificant. So meat and fish consumption is the biggest threat to wildlife. 
It's the greatest cause of forest destruction. It's the biggest threat to water cycles. It's the greatest threat to oceans. It's the greatest cause of climate change. And this is one of many studies that have been produced saying, okay, what is sustainable? What, what level of meat consumption is sustainable? And the WWF have uh, run these sums and they say that meat consumption must fall by, by three quarters globally, which means more than 90% in the meat heavy West. So this is how the USA is that blue bar right at the top. That's their meat consumption now. And oops, and that's their meat consumption as it needs to be to, to hit sustainability. <clears throat> and they're saying this needs to be done by 2030. So this is an urgent message. And what we need to do basically is rethink how we use our land. If we rewild grazing lands, which is half the land we use, we'll solve the biodiversity crisis, the climate crisis, the deforestation crisis, and the water cycles. But it requires diet change. There's a wealth of science on this, in, on this now. Okay, what is sustainable consumption? Well, for climate, red meat and dairy go. For biodiversity loss, we need to get rid of all meat. For water security, we must cut down three quarters of the meat. For deforestation, we need to replace half to 93% of the meat. For nitrogen pollution, we need to replace at least half the meat and dairy. For zoonotic diseases, we must replace all the meat, stop pressuring nature. For ocean, ocean ecosystem health, we must replace seafood with, uh, with others, with plant foods. And for human health, we need to replace 50% of the red meat and sugar. So this is what the science is telling us. This is not me pulling it out of the top of my head. We've got to dramatically change. And we know that without livestock to feed, we would have a 50% surplus of food. And that there is the end. So um, I hope that's been uh, beneficial here. I'll just stop that share. And thank you very much, Gerard, for that that really uh, that that really powerful presentation. And I, I'm I'm glad that you um, ended that presentation with uh, with a solution. So many times you hear people talking about problems, and they don't really offer uh, a, a meaningful solution, or their solutions require legislation and all this kind of stuff. So it's a really uh, powerful presentation. So thank you for that. So. So now we're going to begin the Q&A, uh, the Q&A session. And I just want to explain to the audience exactly how this, this works. So we don't take questions directly from the chat. Instead, we ask everyone to virtually raise their hand. If you're not sure how to do this, what you need to do is click on the reactions button at the bottom. Second from the right, you'll see the reactions button at the bottom of the Zoom. Then you'll click on the raise hand function in the menu that pops up. When I call on your name, I will unmute you and prompt you to state uh, where you are, uh, excuse me, where you're from and to ask your question. And then we just ask that everybody keep their questions brief and on topic. But before we, before I open it up, um, where would people find your documentary and uh, um, anything else about you that you would like to share? Okay, yeah, thanks, Michael. The, the, um, 
The documentary is now available free on YouTube it, with ads. But um, we also, we're still doing uh, a series of, um, you, mostly with climate activist groups. Um, so if you have a group who'd like to view a high quality version of the film um, and then have a question and answer with uh, one of the scientists behind the documentary, we are open to that. So if you have a climate action group or another group who'd be interested in um, uh, in in, uh, in in viewing the film, then then you're welcome to approach us. Um, it, my email is Gerard at eatingforextinction.com. Eating for extinction? Sorry, eating to extinction. Eating to extinction. Okay, to extinction. I didn't think that sounded right. All right, cool. I, I misheard I mis you. Eating to extinction.com. All right, perfect. So uh, with with that, um, and then uh, the uh, and then they can get your um, your book from where. Okay, the, the book is is uh, online at at eatingfortomorrow dot uh, com. Um, I, I'll just put uh, it's it's eating to extinction with a two, so I'll put it in the chat. Oh, perfect. Thank you so much for that clarification. And eatingfortomorrow.com in order to get your book. All right, great. So if you'd like to ask a question of Gerard, um, you can go ahead and raise your hand, as I had mentioned. Um, I see a couple of people there. So just there we go. And so the first question is going to come from Janine or Janine. Please state where you're from and ask your question. Oh, hello, Jared. Thank you very much. Um, I'm Janine. I'm from Camden in New South Wales. Oh, hi. Um, <laughs> I was very, very saddened to see so much of Australia <clears throat> involved in um, deforestation and, and water stress. <clears throat> My question is twofold. Firstly, do you think with the change in our, our federal government that um, people will be starting to listen because the main thing that I hear on the news is, you know, uh, renewable energies. We don't hear anything about our food. And uh, so that's, that's fairly local. That's an Australian question. But worldwide, are our world leaders actually listening and uh, are governments willing to take action? And particularly our own government, are they willing to take action? Yeah, uh, thanks, Janine. Um... You, you hit the nail on the head. Um, if, if the politicians aren't willing to change, then we're in a pickle. But um, I think it was Obama who once said to an activist, uh, you know, the activist said, look, this is your policy. Why haven't you implemented them? And Obama said, make me. In other words, um, the, the, these sort of changes, changing the food system is not on the agenda for, for most politicians. So um, it's only when there's the groundswell of, of personal opinion that they will change. And so eventually the, the politicians who are now saying, oh, they're coming for our burgers, they'll be saying, <laughs> aren't we doing a great thing for planet Earth? Healthy ecosystems equals healthy you and me. 
you know, so um, this will change if we change. Um, the, 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 that's not very helpful, but um, there's a lot of things that can be done on many different levels. Um, as I said before, trees are precious. So any community tree planting exercises, uh, that's, a, that's a wonderful thing. Um, food, of course, is the number one. So every opportunity to get you, you get to be a, a, an annoying vegan, uh, take it. <laughs> Um, yes. And, and, and eventually vegans, well, it, it's, it's, not, it's not nice to have anymore. It's, it's essential for our future. Do we want a habitable planet for our grandkids? If we do, then we must change. Uh, it's so simple. But um, I, I, I think being human, we're slow but not stupid. And we're slowly launching ourselves over the edge, over the abyss. And um, we're, we're, we'll be hitting our brick head against that brick wall. And one of these days, our ears will pop out and we, we, will, um, we will see, okay, we need to use earth differently. And we need that means we need to eat differently. Um, if you look at... Uh, George Monbiot's latest book called Regenesis. Um, this is exactly the message that he talks about, but he also talks about the future of food being um, craft brewed. In other words, precision fermentation used to create proteins for, for all different things, to mimic meat, uh, mm. eggs, whatever. Uh, that may well be the future. Um, for uh, for food, uh, we're swimming in protein. We have way more protein than than what we need. The vegetable <laughs> world is 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 totally adequate for all of us. But um, some people want to get their teeth into something. So uh, uh, yeah, yeah, that that probably is a is a great transition thing or it's a way to go forward. Um, but but getting back to your point. Uh, um, yeah, so the, the personally, change your diet. Um, talk about it. Talk to other people about it. Um, look at a little bit of this material that I've presented here. This will give you confidence in saying, look, water alone says that we can't go past 2030 or at least 2040 without global collapse unless we change. Um, what have you done about this for your kids? You know, that's pretty blunt, but um, communities uh, getting involved in, you know, potlucks, vegan potlucks, uh, tree planting organisations um, at the at the local and the regional level and at the national level. Um, if we have a decent price on carbon. That and and we promote carbon farming adequately, um, this will mean that there'll be money in it for the people on the land who are the best place people to do it is to, to, to fence off that area and let it regrow or re, re while that it, with, as a community project. Yeah. Um, so, um, you know, there, there's lots of potential there. I'm, I'm a, I'm a director of uh, a group called replant Byron. And our goal is to plant 1.8 million trees. Um, uh, but, but a lot of, 
our uh, work is actually being done for us for nothing as nature takes over those properties that aren't actively uh, re-clearing. So, um, yes, nature is bursting to come back. Nature is can't wait for us to stop burning and stop grazing. Sheep are the most, and goats, are the most effective tool to stop forests coming back. You look at uh, Scotland, the highlands of Scotland. It's a beautiful, almost lunar landscape now, bleak. But Scotland's, Scotland used to be called Caledonia. And Caledonia means forest. And what happened is when the English took over uh, Scotland, they carved it up and they gave chunks of land to their cronies and they cleared the trees so that they could produce money by, by putting sheep on the land. So those sheep that were put their way back have been incredibly effective at stopping any seedling of forest of tree that poked its head up, chomp it's gone. So with, with sheep, with ruminant animals and with fire, we've, we've, we continue to terraform earth. If we just stop doing those two things, the earth will change dramatically. But, but why do we need to stop that? Well, as we saw, we can cut down uh, uh, deforestation in the Amazon by half purely by sourcing uh, deforestation-free beef. So beef is such a strong uh, tool there. So, um, you know, our, our, the, the, the source uh, and, and funding for these things, you know, this is another area for, for climate activism is to look at what organisations, what banks are funding these, these organisations, these, the, the, you know, the tree clearing. JBS have a very murky past. They're the biggest meat producer in the world, um, but they need finance. Um, so, um, you know, that's supply chain stuff. The other part of the supply chain is when we've seen it with uh, um, having deforestation-free um, uh, uh, palm oil. Um, and, and we could do the same with beef, and it's starting as well. So there's many, many different facets that we can work on here. But but it's got to start at home and it can start at home. That's the incredibly empowering thing. Um, you know, you can talk about, even if you've got a, a hardened family of meat eaters, you can maybe do one day a week, or there's a lot of analogs out there that taste and, and chew like meat. So uh, we can start with that, but um, it's worth starting. It's worth having those conversations. It's worth talking to people about, did you know that we can kill, we can stop climate change, we can reverse these incredible fires that we've been having and droughts and floods. We can reverse all that by what we eat. Um, if we rewild the three, 37% of the planet that gives us 5% of our protein, we can reverse climate change. C can we do that for red meat and dairy? Can we reverse climate change for giving up those two things? It's a choice. So, um, you know, we need to start those conversations. And definitely the material that I presented here and the material online uh, at, at Eating for the Tomorrow um, is, is, is golden for those conversations. Great. Thank you so much, Gerard.
So um, what does it mean when it is said that um, every trade between countries is a trade in deforestation and water? Yeah, that that's a, well, I'll give you an example of that. And it's, it's so telling. Um, what happened five decades ago, China um, decided to, we need more agricultural land. And so they started clearing and they cleared a lot of forests and they planted a lot of crops. And then what they had is they had an incredible amount of rain and they had huge erosion problems, landslip problems. It destroyed a lot of infrastructure. They then decided, as they, as the central government can, okay, we can't keep doing this. We must reforest. And they, uh, since then, the last three decades, they've been the most successful nation in reforestation of all. They have reforested more of their land and they've planted billions of trees and highly successfully. But <laughs> at the same time, their consumption of pork has gone through the roof. And pork's a big thing, not beef so much in, in, uh, in China. So while at home they were reforesting and increasing the forests uh, dramatically, what they're doing overseas, particularly in South America, is deforesting because um, China's pigs rely on South American uh, 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 soybeans and maize corn. So, so uh, they've effectively exported their deforestation. And in doing so, they've also imported the water that grew those crops in, in South America. So that's where they say a trade in any agricultural products is a trade in water. And it's going on now. I mean, the, the, there's land grabbing going on uh, by a lot of countries, including China, in Africa, uh, South America and, and other countries, Australia even. Uh, and they do it however they can. If they can't buy outright, they, they um, lease, etc. cetera. Um, so that's the future. This is, this is why I say, um, this is why water is going to be so critical because if, if, if a country's tied up its land in exporting grain to a, another country, um, and and the the rain dr dramatically just uh, diminishes like it is doing in South Africa in South America then um they won't have enough food to feed their own people so this is this is going to start conflicts and uh it the, 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 there've been books written about how water will cause global war and they're going to start the flashpoints will be those those rivers that are shared through many countries, through multiple countries. And there's several of those in, in uh, Asia, <clears throat> but, but other countries as well, and Europe as well. So, um, uh, yeah, that, that's, that's, that's the water food trade nexus. Does that get to the question? No, I, I, absolutely. I, you know, I don't think really many people understand or even think about the fact that when you're exporting products you know food products like that you're actually exporting all of the water that 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 um is inside of it it's just something that people that's kind of invisible so you definitely answered that question very well thank you so did the did the film eating our way to extinction have an impact on behavior and policies in your opinion uh yes there's there's some um areas of, of traction um 
as, as well as the general public awareness, um, we, we've opened dialogues with the European Development Bank and the European Union Food Policy Group. Um, we're having uh, ongoing dialogues with those regarding policy. Um, so, so that's uh, that, that's looking very bright. Um, those those dialogues have been going for uh, over a year now. So, um, yeah, that's that's quite positive. I, I think documentaries such as these, um, <laughs> it's a, it's a mouthful. It's too long for a start. There's so much in it. It's it, I reckon it's a beautiful film, but uh, a lot of people it'll be too much for them. So we're looking now at shorter, sharper, uh, more palatable uh, documentaries on specific topics. And water is uh, definitely one of those topics. Um, but but yeah, I, I think it's one of those things that public awareness, uh, a lot of us still have our heads in the sand about the future, but, um, uh, you know, it's, it's slowly... Uh, what was his name? That the, the um, oh, I forget it now. The guy, the drawdown guy, Jonathan Foley. Um, he he's quoted as saying, "Things happen very, very, very slowly, and then all at once." So he's got huge expectations for the way we're able to draw down. So um, I, I expect that that will be the future. Okay, great. Oh, let's hope it happens sooner um, rather than later. So, um, what what solutions aside from diet are there to stop all, you know all the climate change, the the resource depletion, and environmental destruction? Yeah. Um, well, diet, of course, is the most effective one, but um, there's also a lot of myths out there. there there's a lot of uh, that. Big meat is is using the tobacco playbook, um, and and they're promoting their products. And we've got to call them out on this. Um, I've just finished a report. It's going up on the World Preservation Foundation website fairly soon, I think, um, on regenerative grazing, regenerative ranching, um, and 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 you know that this is being used uh, with tremendous success for marketing now. But um, it's all smoke and mirrors. Um, it's just if I might digress into that for a little bit. Sure. It's really interesting that this this particular topic, regenerative ranching, regenerative grazing, um, regenerative uh, uh, growing uh, crops has has a long and 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 beautiful history. Uh, but that's been taken over in the last decade by those in the meat industries who are seeing this as a great marketing tool. And what and my had the, the biggest advocate is a bloke called Alan Savory, who's done a uh, TED Talk. And if you look at the number of views of that TED Talk on YouTube and so on, it's been viewed about 15 million times. And we have he has a following now of, of farmers who believe that um, they can... <clears throat> They can change the world. They can draw down all the carbon from the atmosphere and they can produce more beef and the world will be a happy place. And they've been conned into this um, by this Alan Savory talk. And it's, it's, a, it's a very, very interesting thing. Um, but, but what's happened? I'll just go into the soil science for a little bit. 
soil science, soil carbon is a dark art. Um, even, even the best of soil scientists find it very hard to do good science uh, soils carbon monitoring. And so even uh, picking a patch of soil from one foot to the other, uh, you're going to get different results. And so confirmation bias comes in. If you want to believe that beef is good for the planet, then you will find a study that supports that belief. Um, but the trouble is that that the the work that supports those that that that's relied on by that industry, um, it's it's not peer reviewed. It's it's uh, <laughs> rather sneaky. Actually, they use three things. I, I call it the the bluffer's guide to soil carbon, and it's and it's really it's beautiful. Um, Take the White Oaks Farm, for example. You know, there's an example of, of a farm. They have cattle grazing. They have these movable chicken pens that fertilise the soil, etc. And they have beautiful long grass and they, and they claim that this is regenerative farming. Well, yes, they measured the content of carbon in their soil and they showed that it's in, increasing. But but this is the this is the sneak sneaky trick what number one the, the first bluffers uh, uh, task, and that is that they import nutrients. So what they do is they import grain to feed the chickens, and then the chickens fertilize the soil, so that the soil carbon it doesn't come from improved grazing practice. It comes from the grain that's imported to feed the chickens. Okay, that's number one. The 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 second one is that. If you have a paddock of animals, any animals, and you do nothing to it other than take half the animals off, what's going to happen is that the grass is going to grow long and so the roots grow more and so you get more soil carbon. That's where the soil carbon comes from, the roots and the litter from the plants. So if you reduce the stocking rate on, on a paddock, you will increase the soil carbon. That's the trick number two. Trick number three is that if you take any uh, cropland, any land that's been uh, turned over has been cropped for some time, and you can, and you revert that back to grazing land, uh, uh, just just uh, uh, let the cattle on it, then you will find the soil carbon increases because cropland is incredibly depleted in carbon, and any sort of uh, uh, pastures that are permanent from one year to the next will improve soil carbon. So that's the third trick that's used. So if you read a soil study that advocates, look, there are big results we've got, they're using one of those three tricks and usually more than one. So um, some of them had stocking rates that were so ultra low, it's not actually producing any food to speak of. So so it's, it's smoke and mirrors, but it's incredibly effective. And because because you have this confirmation bias, the, the, the producers who want to believe that they're doing the right thing and the, and the consumers who want to believe that they're doing the right thing by eating beef are <laughs> vindicated. You know? so, the, so they'll believe what they want to believe, but it's only a tiny fraction. If, if we, if we re replenish the world's grazing uh, soil, it will only be 1% or 2% of all the uh, yearly emissions. So, but we're not going to do that because most of the world's grazing lands are, are rangelands, and it's too expensive to get out there and, and do and 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 you know put nutrients into that land. So, 
um, that, that that's that's the thing. It's not going to happen. It's it's smoke and mirrors in it, but it's great for marketing. And and so um, that's that's the the regenerative grazing story. So because it's so good, because it's attracted so much attention, there's documentaries, Kiss the Ground, these other ones. Um, we, we've got ag, uh, 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 in educational institutions offering offering courses now. You've got uh, local groups uh, offering education. You've got governments that are supporting it. So it's it's developed a momentum of its own, despite the the huge amount of science that says it's totally ineffective. And there's a lot of science that says it's ineffective. Um, but the marketing's been so good that it will it will it will develop. Um, so so this is the one thing that we've got to fight. We've got to call them out on that. Um, on that uh, uh, marketing that the meat industry does. And, and one of the big things is deforestation-free beef. Um, you know, JBS are expert at shuffling the cards. They, they, they declare that they are, their supply chains are free of deforestation, but they buy from third-party producers who just cut down the forest, who graze cattle there. So, um, and this is none of it's tracked. So um, that's that's what we've got to call them out on as well. And in fact, the world's um, cheap beef, um, the, the hamburgers of the world, which is most of the beef, actually comes from the rangelands, comes from those uh, low productivity areas, including the Amazon. It's actually, the, the soils aren't that great. And so when they deforest, you, do, you can't put a whole lot of cattle on. Or if you do, you can only have it on for one or two years and then you have to reduce the stocking rate. Most of the world's hamburger beef, it's, it's called industrial beef. It comes from there. So hamburgers can almost certainly be nailed at, with the deforestation banner. So um, this is one thing. Whenever you see someone eating a burger, is that, is that deforestation free, that, that beef? And you know for sure that it's not. So um, yeah, um, that that's definitely what we got to we've got to call them out on these things and educating ourselves, such as this report that's going up on. It's an eighty-page report; it's pretty comprehensive. It's going up on regenerative grazing or ranching. Um, is is the sort of thing that we need to get out there. Um, but it's it's also you know there's other there's other myths as well. If I might go into those briefly. Um, they, they say that it's a natural cycle, and and perhaps it was once where we had the the ruminants of the world grazing on the grass, and um, eating that grass and being being used in the field to to tow the plough or to uh, you know uh, to to work the farm um, or to provide milk for the <clears throat> farmers, but. We have so disrupted that balance. We we now have um, thirty times more um, uh, uh, herbivores in, by weight than there were ever wild herbivores. So we have loaded up our planet with thirty times more eating and defecating animals. Uh, than were ever there before. So the, the consumption is extreme. The nitrogen pollution is extreme. The deforestation is extreme. The water pollution is extreme. 
the air pollution, etc. So, um, yes, it was once a natural cycle, maybe 10,000 years ago, but and, and there may have been millions of bison on the plains in North America. Yes, but now there's hundreds of millions of cattle. So um, we, we've so uh, pushed this over, over the limit that, you know, we people say that uh, grass-fed is best, that, that um, um, you know, feedlots or confined uh, production of animals is, is horrible and that, and that grass-fed in an open paddock, what could be better? Well, <laughs> grass-fed is actually driving the deforestation. It's, it's, it's driving the um, uh, lack of reforestation of those areas. It's, it's, it's driving the nitrogen pollution and the, and the um, uh, climate change that we're seeing. So the, the worst food of all, in some ways, is the most natural. That's the grazed animal. That's the worst food for the planet. And if you read George Monbiot's book, he, he talks about that beautifully, the Regenesis, where he says that if you if you're arguing for um, um, if you're arguing for gr more grass fed, what you're doing is you're arguing for more deforestation. And in fact, the way they do it now with with and there was a, an, a study done in Australia. They have this panel ongoing, multi-decade panel of farms and they have this this new panel uh, decades old of uh, regenerative grazing farms and what they did is they compared the profitability this is a government study and they found that the regenerative farms had half the profitability profitability of the conventional grazing farms and the reason for that was that they only had half the number of cattle on each block of land so um, to make the grass look lush and beautiful, you see, you see, having bare ground is a very public embarrassment for graziers. They want to see the grass looking uh, lush and they want to see it looking good. So regenerative means that you, you take half the cattle up or more and it does. It looks great because the cows are not eating so much and the, and the, and the roots are growing more and therefore there's more soil carbon. So... Um, if you're arguing for regeneratively grazed beef or rotational grazing, whatever you want to call it, holistic, then you're arguing for even more land to be devoted for grazing. Then you, that means an argument for um, more deforestation, et cetera. And, and the, the, there's been studies done on this as well. They looked at North America and they found that if the, the same amount of beef that was being produced now if that were to be, be produced with a regenerative grazing system, they would need four times the land as they have now to produce that. You see, um, most animals, if they're fed on grass, they're malnourished and they need um, lot feeding to actually bring them back to good shape. So, um, uh, the, and this occurs in local areas or large areas. You can have uh, deficiencies of minerals, etc. But most grazing animals are malnourished. Um, an example is uh, in Australia we have um, an, an area, Southern Downs, um, an area of very fine wool, and and this wool is is 
is is the choice wool around the world. It's highly prized by, for example, Japanese and Europeans. And the reason that the wool is so thin is because those animals are so malnourished. <laughs> so if you have a healthy, well-nourished animal, you have good thick hair. But no, this is this is fine hair and it's highly prized and it shows that the poor sheep is suffering. But the same thing occurs with uh, with grazing animals. Beef, most all the beef of the world, you look at the, the beef that rely totally on grass, the, the African beasts, and don't they look in good shape? Not. They look terrible because they're malnourished. So what we do in the West, what we do is we have them for a certain part of their life while they wean and, and leave their mothers um, for maybe 80 months or so on grass. And then we whack them in feedlots for their last 100 days or so. And we fatten them up, we feed them up, we get the meat to the, to the uh, generally accepted standards for marketing. So um, the system that we have now is the most efficient system of producing beef. And it produces good quality, good quality beef. And um, it doesn't place so much pressure on the environment. But if we were to take that system and make it all grass fed, first of all, we'd have malnourished animals. And secondly, we need four times as much land as we have now. Uh, so, so there goes the forest. So uh, this is a ridiculous situation to say, eat, eat less but better beef. It's just not on. It's, it's trashing the environment. Any other any other things uh, any other um, solutions outside of diet then? Um, yeah, um, and if not, that's fine. We, we we can you know we've got a few other people asking who want to ask questions as well. But I just wanted to see if you had anything. You know, I I, I know you we briefly touched on governments and whatnot, and and they don't seem to be overly helpful. Um, so is there, is there, is it really, is it really come down to diet, 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 and, you know, the consumers and then, and then the, the, uh, grassroots, uh, advocacy basically. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if you look at, uh, the, the bleeding edge of trashing the planet, it's the Amazon and those, those guys who, well, first of all, they cut down the timber. That's a bit of cash for them to start with. And that and that provides them with uh, the money to keep going, and they and then they burn, 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 and then they can produce pasture. So they only do it. They only keep burning. They have to do it over multi years. They only keep burning if there's money in it. So if these people are poor, you know, they they're right on the the borderline. So they do anything they can for a dollar. And so um, if if there is no market in having land that's that they have to spend years burning, then they won't do that um, if there's no money in it. So uh, basically, yes, if the demand is not there, then the environmental trashing will discontinue. Even if they clear fell the forest, it will regrow to pristine forest within 20, 30 years in a rainforest. It's that quick. And uh, the biodiversity uh, springs back as well in a bit longer, but um, but yeah, that that if it's supply and demand basically. So if we if we reduce the demand, uh, then then the, the there's no point in them doing it. So they won't keep trashing the Amazon. 
Yeah, great. Thank you for that. Uh, next question is coming from Bex. Bex, okay. please say where you're from and ask your question. Okay, thank you so much. How very informative and infuriating, but needed. <laughs> but absolutely needed. I'm in Los Angeles. And um, well, I think you probably answered at least 20 of my questions, but, you know, deforestation in the Amazon is, is really heart wrenching. And, and for what, for food, for the addiction to consuming animals. And so you mentioned all the different impacts that we can take. Um, you, you did mention that we didn't need any environmental goals. And I'm wondering, um, you know, there's a lot of people that just don't know about how to find them and what they can do. So how do we find a list of these environmental goals and make it easy to do a bite-sized piece? Um, you know, with, with the population, I think you said it was 40% and then animals 60%, you know, with COVID-19 and the zoonotic type pandemic. Um, that reduces the human population. Therefore, that also reduces the demand for animals. So um, I think if we have less population, we'll have less of a demand for the taste of animals. Thank you. Yeah, um, thank you for that. Yes, um, the, the um, okay. Um, the, the first part about that was the, uh, the the information that you're seeking on the website, the Eating for Tomorrow website. We have um, particularly the the myth busting section. There's some really good information in that. Um, on top of that, I, I can supply the presentation that I gave today. I can PDF that, and um, if anyone, and I've also given, I've put my email in the in the comments section. Not sure if I... I can type it in there again while you answer the question, if you'd okay. like. So, so if anyone wants the PDF of that presentation, and the presentation is fully referenced. In other words, all of the science references for every statement that I make are on those pages. So... Um, you know, there's backup. <laughs> that's the uh, that's the best science we have at the moment. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Uh, for some reason, I didn't mind didn't go through. Anyway, um, so so that's that. Um, sorry, what was the last part of your question? She mentioned she mentioned uh, COVID nineteen being zoonotic, but basically, kind of like her. You know, basically wiping out people and therefore we'd have less human beings, which means less demand. So does a smaller number of people on the planet um, equal less demand, which I would think would be a yes. Yeah, it's um, quite right. Um, but we've got to re realize too that uh, we, the developed world is by far the most responsible. Uh, as we saw from the WWF figures, we are consuming five times more than the planet can sustain but the global average is 1.7. So we are by far the worst culprits. So it's it's the Western world that we need this message to get through to mostly. Um, developing nations also, um, China has, has done their utmost to catch up in their meat consumption. 
uh, and India, strangely enough, uh, for a Hindu country, they are also increasing their um, uh, meat consumption. Uh, although they, they don't report it when they're asked, they, but, but the consumption figures prove that it, that's what's happening. So, <clears throat> yes, the number of cultural things there that need to change, definitely it's the number of people, but um, the, the problem is not the people in numbers. The problem is the numbers of animals. There's 10 times more animals at any one time um, than people on the face of the earth. So that's a lot more mouths to feed, so therefore a lot more pressure on the environment. Um, I think, did that get to your question? I, I think that that, that, that nailed what she, what she was asking. So uh, let me ask you a question. So and we have about uh, seven more minutes. So, um, so aside from animal products, what other foods cause damage to the climate and to the planet and to resources? Yeah, good question. Anything that causes deforestation, as, as I showed, cumulative emissions from deforestation are greater than cumulative fossil fuel emissions. And most fossil fuel emissions are actually masked out. They're, they're um, balanced by the cooling of co-emitted sulfur dioxide and others. So by far, deforestation is the greatest cause of global warming apart from methane. So um, the, the things that, that cause deforestation, 88% of deforestation is for agriculture. Um, most of that, or 80%, is for animal agriculture. Um, but there's still that other uh, 12% that is, is for non-agricultural things like biofuels, like, um, uh, you know, cities and so on. But cities still are tiny in comparison, 1% of, of the land compared with 37% just for grazing. So um, anything that puts pressure on forests. Um, timber, by the way, is, is minor in comparison to agriculture. Uh, not that I'm advocating we continue with timber, but there's good arguments to have uh, highly productive uh, plantation timbers still growing. It's a great material for us. Um, but but old growth forest logging, um, old growth forests are incredibly good at soaking up CO two, so we need to um, we need to leave them alone. But the uh, but the plantation pine forests are definitely uh, a, a good thing for the future. And there's still a lot of carbon tied up in that land, so um, it's not so bad for climate. Thank you. So. Who do you find that your message resonates with? And like, are there anybody who surprises you or, you know, is it the typical people? And who do you find completely ignores your message and the information that you provide? Yeah. Um, that, that's, I just, that, just that's that we have about four minutes. So go ahead. Yeah. That's another example of confirmation bias. You know, if we're beef lovers, we don't want to hear this message. 
And so we we might turn on YouTube for a while and watch the first five minutes, and then, oh, no, I don't really believe that. <laughs> we put our head in the sand. Um, but, but, you know, we talk about dangerous climate change being one and a half to two degrees, and we're at 1.1 now. So we're not, that, we're not there yet. But you talk to those people who have experienced the floods, the fires, the droughts, the lack of food, the lack of water. These are examples of what we're facing now. And, and if you have to uproot your family in Syria and walk and boat to Europe, I mean, you, you, you do, you'd rather do anything but that because it's going to a foreign country, a foreign culture. They won't accept us. No, it's, it's um, you know, they have to do it for survival. And so this is happening more and more. It's in our face more and more. And so I believe that we are slow but not stupid and we will get to the point where, yes, we are personally affected or those around us are personally affected so much that we just can't ignore it. And, oh, what was that crazy solution out here again? Oh, I could do that or maybe I could do that one day a week. Well, um, it's not only climate. It's also biodiversity. Biodiversity, the web of life, is what supports our life on this planet. If you take away that web of life, which we're doing, we're trashing it, then we're risking our own future. So it's 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 biodiversity, it's water, it's forests, it's pollution, it's the oceans. Um, there, there's many facets to it that, that are going to wake us up. And I believe that's happening. And you can see the trends have already started. The trends always start very, very, very slow and then accelerate. So, And then they reach a tipping point, uh, which Monbiot says is about a quarter, about 25% of the population recognise this as a problem, do something about it. A quarter of the population get to that point, then we'll, we'll hit the tipping point and then we'll roll to a very different future. <laughs> we won't do it until we have to. That's what I believe but we will do it. And with our, we've got a, about two minutes left. So let me just continue on with that question a little bit. Do you find that that um, with within two minutes, can you tell me for environmental activists that are, um, that are always looking at fossil fuels as the problem, do they resonate with this message where it requires them to ch actually change their behavior in a way that they may not have, you know, um, they may not enjoy as much? Do they resonate yeah. with this message? Are they making the sacrifice with their own with their own choices? Yeah, no, obviously not. They've 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 drunk the Kool Aid and uh, they've accepted the, the. I mean, it's a it's a common line. It's, uh, climate scientists are, are, are very behind that line, and and therefore governments are doing the same. It's fossil fuels and carbon dioxide. But that paper that I showed in one of those slides, um, that recent research that said no. Fossil fuels have caused just one-fifth of global warming to date. That sort of information makes people think. So um, that's the sort of thing that if we can if we can get that sort of message out, if we can if we can tell people that, that will change things. And, and I'll quite happily provide a link maybe to this presentation um, or, 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 or give that to people who are interested. Uh, but that sort of information is really hard hitting, can't be ignored. Could you put that link in the uh, in the chat when you get a chance? Yeah, um, 
I've, I've okay. set a link. I wonder how I can do it. Can you perhaps put it up and link to it? Is that possible? Um, yeah, well, we'll I'll, I'll work with my team and see what we can do to to get the to make the presentation available. I'm not sure exactly what we need to do, but we'll we'll do our best. Um, right. And if, we, if you can just make sure that we have a copy of the uh, the presentation, that would be very helpful. Sure. So I have, I have your email. I'll, I'll I'll email you. So with that, I want to say thank you so much for this really informative and very important information. And if we can unmute the audience. Thank you very much, Joe. Thank you for encouraging us. Thank you. Powerful. Thank you. 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 Thank you